The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Lord, we, we sing these words, I surrender all, and even I will ever love and trust you. We sing this knowing that we so often don't surrender even the smallest of things to you. We confess that we don't always rightly love you and trust you, but but Lord, we sing these words knowing that they're right, knowing that this should be true of us. So we sing these words both as praise because you are worthy of such things and as our prayer. Because we do love you. We want to glorify you above all of the various things in this life that we we cling to. That we hold tightly to. We sing these words and think of Jesus who as the Son of God possessed the glory that belongs to God alone. And yet in humility he suffered. He surrendered it all. By taking on human flesh and dwelling among us. He surrendered all. Ever loving and trusting you, Father. And this this is ours in Jesus. And so we sing, so we pray, Lord, do this work in us. Cause us to see and love your glory in the face of Jesus. To then worship you with our lives by putting you first. Trusting you in all things. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Please bless this portion of our worship as we read and consider the ultimate truth, the true truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Yes, Pastor Brian really did name this morning's sermon, Eaten by Worms. Not because this detail is the main focus of our time this morning, though I will repeat this phrase frequently. But because, like any good title, it gets our attention, doesn't it? In our text, Luke actually tells of the death of King Herod Agrippa I, saying he was eaten by worms. And when we read this, because we've seen too many movies with special effects, we imagine a scene where he doubles over screaming as worms begin to quickly eat him alive. Something like the the villain in the first Indiana Jones movie where he's like melting like wax. So, for those of you who love the action scenes in the book of Acts, I give you eaten by worms. But, don't take this too literally. It's not the point Luke is making as much as to say that Herod is quickly judged by God for his blasphemous arrogance. Along with Luke, we have the Jewish historian Josephus who who gives us details of this actual event. He writes of Herod's death. Here's how he described it. Herod was seized by a severe pain in his belly He was carried quickly into the palace 
And when he had suffered continuously for five days, he died. Miserable. Medical professionals have read this and speculated that, that his, maybe his appendix burst and uh, peritonitis set in. Others say that his symptoms are what we might expect with uh, poisoning with arsenic, which was not uncommon in those days for leaders. What Luke tells us is that an angel of the Lord struck him down. He may have been struck down by causing his appendix to burst. He may have been struck down through the means of an enemy poisoning him. But regardless of the means, we are again reminded that God is sovereign over all things. And that he works through means to accomplish his will. He is the one who numbers our days. And he is the one who determined it was time for Herod to be humbled and judged for his blasphemy and arrogant pride. Robbing God of his glory. To say that he was eaten by worms communicates judgment. Herod wanted he wanted the good judgment and praise of the people. He relished in it. And it led to God judging him and sending him to the place Jesus describes as where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. As we read this morning's text, keep in mind that, that Luke began this chapter, chapter 12, describing how King Herod attacked Christ's church by executing James and then imprisoning Peter with the intention of executing him after Passover week. The chapter begins with Herod displaying his might and power. It begins with an enemy that seems too powerful, too mighty, like a, like a Goliath to a little shepherd boy. Like Egypt pursuing Israelites. Like those who marched around the city of Jericho with trumpets. Like Gideon's 300 defeating an army, a Midianite army of 135,000. It's a theme all throughout Scripture. That tells us some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. When we read Acts 12, remember, this is a battle. It's a battle between an earthly king and the king of kings. It's a, it's a battle with the might of King Herod and his soldiers guarding Peter on one side versus King Jesus. And his church praying for Peter on the other. And really, when we think of it this way, it's no match. It's no match when you consider that we pray to the God who spoke everything into existence. And that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The one who created all things in heaven and on earth. Even the various thrones, rulers, and authorities. He is the one who holds them all together. It is no match. Really, when we have this accurate picture, we should know that any attack, any attack upon Christ's church is pathetic. Truly, truly we should 
keep Psalm 2 in mind. We should not fear human governments and authorities. Yes, they may throw Christians into prison or have them executed, but not if God doesn't allow it. God is sovereign over all things. And those who oppose him are fools. They don't rightly see as we see that Jesus is the King of Kings. That truly he sits upon his heavenly throne and is not threatened, but laughs at their arrogance, holds them in derision. They're fools. And so God says, be wise, O kings, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, and you may, if not, be eaten by worms. So when we watch the news and are fearful of the future and the freedoms that may be lost, we need to remember God's word. And those who take refuge in him are blessed. Well, let's do that now. If you're able, please stand once again for the reading of God's word. Uh, Acts 12, we're going to pick it up at verse 19. Read to the end of the chapter. And after Herod searched for Peter... Remember, Peter escaped. After Herod searched for Peter and did not find him, examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not a man! Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is God's word. You may be seated. You see what Luke's doing here? Beginning with Herod in charge, flexing his might against Christians, using his power to execute one of their leaders, imprisoning Peter, then executing the guards that allowed his escape, and now just soaking in all the praise, having the power over these representatives from Tyre and Sidon because they need, they need food. And he has the power over it. He's the man in charge. His family has a reputation. His grandfather, Herod the Great, was incredibly gifted, known for his magnificent building projects, including the temple in Jerusalem. He reigned from 34 to 4 B.C., controlling Palestine at the time of Jesus' birth. A ruthless man who exterminated 
any rival to his throne, including at least one of his wives and several of his sons. He's the king who ordered the murder of babies in Bethlehem because he heard about the birth of Jesus, the king of the Jews. Herod the Great was succeeded by his son Archelaus, who was so bad that the Jews complained to the emperor And the emperor actually listened and had him removed from power. He only reigned from 4 B.C. to 86. After him, another son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. He reigned in Galilee until being banished to Gaul in A.D. 39. This is the Herod who killed John the Baptist and played a role at Jesus' trial. Now the Herod in our story is Herod Agrippa I, who was was made king of Judea in A.D. 41, and he died in A.D. 44. He was the son of Aristobulus, who was Herod the Great's son by a, a second wife. The Herod in our story, was he was raised in Rome. And while he was there, he became friends with Gaius Caligula, a very corrupt man who eventually ascended to the throne and and then appointed Herod to a prominent position. And then in AD 41, when Claudius became the fourth Roman emperor, Herod was made king over Judea and Samaria. So it's an impressive lineage, a lot of power. And Josephus tells us that Herod, he worked really hard to be on the good side with the Jews. He was half Jewish. He seemed to, he seemed to have a respect for Judaism. It's told that he even took part in some of the temple ceremonies, even reading the law publicly on occasion. So he was a practicing Jew, showed respect to Judaism, cared about the opinions of the Jews. Obviously, you know, people are skeptical of this, especially after seeing what he does here in Acts 12. But they're skeptical um, because they're thinking, well, he's just wanting to keep his position as king. And keeping peace with the Jews is, a, is the way to do it so they don't complain. But if he really cared about the Jewish faith, and you'd think that when the people are calling him a god, he would have refused that. It was either a weak moment in a man who let power get to his head or it revealed his true character. Either way, let's just say he was eaten by worms. He got what he deserved. Josephus tells us more about this event. He writes, After the completion of the third year of his reign over the whole of Judea, Agrippa came to the city of Caesarea. Here he celebrated spectacles in honor of Caesar. On the second day of the spectacles, clad in a garment woven completely of silver so that its texture was indeed wondrous, he entered the theater at daybreak so that beams of the sun are hitting that silver. Entered at daybreak, there the silver illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun. It was wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe 
in those who gazed intently upon it. Straightway his flatterers raised their voices from various directions, though hardly for his good, addressing him as a god. May you be propitious, merciful, and kind to us. May you be propitious to us, they added. And, And if we have hitherto feared you as a man... Yet henceforth we agree that you are more than mortal in your being. The king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flattery as impious. But shortly thereafter he looked up and saw an owl perched on a rope over his head. At once, recognizing this as a harbinger of woes, he felt a stab of pain in his heart. He was also gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once, and that was intense from the start. The story behind this owl, it's told, has to do with a time many years before when Agrippa, he was in trouble with Claudius or uh, Tiberius Caesar. He was in trouble with him, and while imprisoned in chains, an owl appeared, perched above his head, And another prisoner who was involved in ancient magic saw that and told him that the owl was a messenger, an angel, saying that this was an omen of good fortune that that would lead to his release from prison. And he was. But then another prisoner, when he saw it, told him, if the owl ever appeared again, it would mean that you only have five days to live. I don't know whether that's true, but it's interesting, isn't it? Here was a man, the most powerful ruler in Palestine, in control of the grain that was traded to Tyre and Sidon. And apparently they they did something to anger him. There's an economic boycott that's being threatened. So a Phoenician delegation is sent to Caesarea. A man named Blastus acts as a mediator. And Herod enjoys the power. He puts on a robe made of silver. He glories in the shouts of praise and those begging for mercy and and kindness from him. He's just soaking it all up. And for any Jewish bystander, it it would have been seen as blasphemous. Herod seems untouchable, and yet God is sovereign. Luke is showing us these contrasts. God immediately, in the midst of Herod's glory, strikes him dead. And what happened? That's right. He was eaten by worms. I mentioned this to my granddaughter, Amelia, that I was going to title my sermon this. And she quickly kind of scrunched her nose and said, I think you need to pick a different title. But it's okay. It's Father's Day. I wouldn't do this on Mother's Day. The description, it's so humbling. I think that's the point. It's so humbling. It so clearly shows who's really in charge. And what anyone deserves if they dare rob God of what belongs to Him and Him alone. When we read this, we we think of... We think of other biblical stories like King Nebuchadnezzar in the fourth chapter of Daniel. He's standing on the roof 
of his great palace in Babylon, looking out over the, over the city, the famous hanging gardens and ancient wonder of the world. And he says this, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And those are dangerous words. And we see this attitude in so many of our leaders today, don't we? Absolute arrogance that says, how dare you question my authority? I rule over you. Yes, it's a republic, but I rule over you. You'll do what I say. Your children aren't yours, they're ours. In essence, I'm God. And we should pray for them. That God will have mercy on them and turn them around as he graciously did with King Nebuchadnezzar. Because if not, then one day you know what will happen. They'll get what they deserve. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, God struck him for a time, making him mad, insane, driving him away from even the presence of humans, humbling him to the point of Him acting like a wild animal grazing in the fields for seven years. And after seven years, God mercifully restored his sanity. Instead of robbing God of his glory, now King Nebuchadnezzar praises God and acknowledges that only Jehovah is God. We should pray for our leaders. Truly, what can man do to us? Do we believe God's word? What can man do to us? The Lord is on our side. He is our helper. And in Psalm 118, the psalmist tells us that we should look in triumph on those who hate us. The early church experienced this. And that's not to say that God has always rescued us from tribulation and persecution. But he will ultimately rescue us. He is victorious. He has defeated sin and death. Jesus is sovereignly ruling over his kingdom. And God's word concludes with the book of Revelation. With a message that that really can be summed up in just two words. And those two words are, Jesus wins. We can learn an important lesson from Acts chapter 12. We can see that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We can see the importance of humility in our various roles of authority, our roles of authority, and that we should be Jesus-like. We should be servant leaders that want the best for others. We can read this story and say, I need to be humble. I need to be mindful that any praise given to me should ultimately go to God because we know that any talent, any achievement or success, any good deed that you do, all of it is only because of God. That He is the source of any good in us or or any good done by us. And if we acknowledge this, it will keep us from the root of all sin, pride. These are important lessons to learn. And yet, it's not really the reason Luke tells us that Herod was eaten by worms. 
That's not really the main point here. No, the, the reason he tells us about Herod is to provide this contrast. A contrast that we've, dis- that we've looked at already. And that contrast is seen in verses 24 and 25. Here's the contrast. Verse 24 says, But the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod dies, but the gospel lives. And verse 25 adds, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The gospel lives, and the expansion of the church throughout through missions is about to begin. John Stott writes, At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Isn't that great? This opposition, any opposition to the gospel, it should not be a surprise to us. We see it all throughout church history. And, and really, this conflict is it's the main theme of Scripture. God tells us back in Genesis 3. It's a summary statement for all of Scripture. Genesis 3.15, where God speaks to the serpent after the fall and says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, he, Jesus, being that seed, shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You'll inflict a wound. Jesus is the promised offspring who came and was victorious over Satan, crushing the head of the serpent. And the story of the Bible is one of enmity, of hostility between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve that eventually leads to Jesus. And even though Jesus wins at the cross, the battle continues until he comes again once and for all to judge the living and the dead. That's, that's the Bible. The church continues to face hatred and opposition. And Jesus promised what? He promised that the gates of hell will not prevail over his church. So this contrast, it, we see it all throughout scripture. We see it all throughout church history. And it continues today. The enemies of the cross will always oppose the gospel. But still, the good news spreads. It continues. And when verse 24 says that the word of God increased and multiplied, it's not talking about more copies, but the effect of God's word. The effect of God's word multiplied. It increased through Christ's church. And because of this, the Christian faith increased in strength and in members. The church it's interesting this is the word of God increased and multiplied. And what he means is the church increased and multiplied. The church is so closely tied to the word of God that Luke uses these interchangeably. We are 
the people of the book. So much so that we are not Christ's church if we are not centered on and closely tied to the Word of God. It's central to everything. It's our authority. It's the gospel. It's our hope and joy. It's everything. The Word of God is declared and taught and disciples are made through Christ's church. And while Herod decreased, the Word of God increased. And here's why. First, the Word of God is effective. The Word of God is effective. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Profitable. Profitable is the key word. The one reason the Word of God continues to spread is that it accomplishes what God intends. Scripture tells us about itself. Scripture tells us that the Word of God will not return void. That is, when it goes out, it will not be useless. It will not be ineffectual. It will always have some effect on the hearer. It will either soften a heart or harden it. It will either bless those who receive it with joy or condemn those who reject it. And for our loved ones who may be in a state of rebellion, the only way for them to come to the end of themselves, like the prodigal son, come to the end of themselves and repent and return to the Father is by the Word of God. By remembering or hearing once again that the Father is good. We need to remember that God's Word is powerful. It's effective. When God God speaks, something happens. Always happens. When He said, let there be light, there was light. When He said, Lazarus, come forth, He came to life and obeyed. God's Word is not simply letters on a page. We need to remember and have confidence in the fact that it will always produce some kind of result, either immediately or over time. Heard or remembered. So pray that the the prodigal will remember the Word of God that was taught to them. That they'll come to the end of themselves. And return to the love of the Father. And not only them, but us. We need to remember that God's Word is effective in our lives. That it's the most profitable Word we can ever hear or spread. And that truly, when you think about, when we think about our time, most of what we hear, most of what we watch and listen to on TV, It's really unprofitable. (laughs) It really is. Politics, news that's designed to make us mad and fearful, entertainment that may distract us from worries for a moment. Maybe there's some practical benefits, but truly, are they profitable? Are they really profitable? Maybe there's some... Something, but God's word is profitable. We are taught about things that last. 
we are rebuked and convicted to turn from the sin that's only going to bring about heartache and destruction in our lives. We are corrected in areas of life and doctrine leading to joy. We are trained to be more like Jesus, equipped to be, to be a blessing to other people. The Word of God is effective. It is profitable. We need to pick up our Bibles and read them. We need to study and grow and have the Word in us so that we can continue to do the work of the early church and increase and multiply. Teach it to your children. With that in mind, this is profitable. This is, this is effective. God's Word does not return void. They're not going to, the Holy Spirit's not going to let them forget this. Teach it to your children. Share it with your friends and neighbors. Embrace it in your own lives in order to, to be a, to better love God, to give him the glory in all things. A second reason that the word of God increased and multiplied is because it's piercing. God's word is not a, not a static document. It's more than inspiration or provocative. It's living. It's active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces into a person's soul, into their heart and mind. This is what it says about itself. Do we believe that it actually does this? Do we believe that it actually does this? That, that it's this effective in a person's life, saving them, convicting and bringing a level of hope that can't be taken away from us, speaking to us in a way that no other message is capable of doing. Are we confident in God's Word? That each time we go to it, God is speaking to us. God is speaking to us. The God who loves you and wants you to be blessed in Jesus. So again, we need, to, we need to read it. We need to study it. We need to listen to it being taught and preached. So read it. I know it's halfway through the year. You failed on your Bible reading plan that you started in January. Pick one up anyway. Pick up the one that's not dated. You won't feel bad. Read it. So we have some plans on the back table. And I want you to recognize, I want you to recognize the difference between reading and studying. The importance of both. It's important to, to read the Bible and to study it. And so many people tend to do one or the other. They read it without meditating on it, without asking questions of the text, without wrestling with what it says, or others, they focus so much on the tree without a view of the forest, without a context that informs what they're trying to study. So I recommend reading your Bible, big chunks of the Bible. Don't stop, just go. Just read. Check the box and yes, that's frustrating sometimes, isn't it? We, we do that and we think, I don't remember a thing what I just read. God's word does not return void. It's there. The Holy Spirit will bring it back to your mind. 
especially when you're studying. He will use it in circumstances that that come your way. In parenting, in your marriage, in counseling a friend, in sharing the good news of Jesus to your neighbor, in your actual time of study as you're reminded, oh, I read that somewhere else, and you start making connections, and you have a right, proper context. Read. God's, God's Word pierces us. It's active. It's never a waste of time. A third reason for the increase in Acts is that this piercing Word of God is life-giving. It, that, that last verse in Hebrews, it, it's this image of a sword, and we think, I always love the, the picture, you know, Satan uses a blade to, to give a wound. God's blade is like a scalpel where he is like a surgeon bringing about healing. So it's a different kind of cutting, piercing. It's life-giving. Isaiah 55 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God provides rain in order to produce fruit that sustains life. And God is sovereign over all. That's a picture of the provision of his word. He gives it to produce fruit in us for the sake of life and blessing to the world. And because of this, there's there's an increase. You... You are an agent of life and growth. Lastly, a a reason for this increase is because God's word is eternal. We read in Matthew 24 that heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will not pass away. As we get older, one of the lessons of life is that nothing lasts. Even if you think about, well, they used to make things out of steel. Now they make it out of plastic. Well, they both break. One just lasts a little longer. But nothing lasts. Everything breaks down. Herod and his arrogance and power didn't last. People are born and then they die. The second law of thermodynamics tells us about entropy. That everything is moving toward disorder and decay. The earth on which we stand is not eternal. It's passing away. And this isn't to say that, that our work, that our achievements in this life, are, that they're pointless or a waste of time. That's not the point. No, there's great value in many things that, that won't ultimately last. And even the unbeliever has a concept of this when they, when they say things like you know nothing's more impre- nothing's more precious than life an unbeliever would say and yet as christians we should know that well that's not actually true yes physical life is precious 
And we ought to go to great lengths to protect and preserve and enhance life. But it's not the most precious thing of all. Spiritual life, what lasts for eternity, that is more valuable. It's why we see Christians willing to give up their physical life for the sake of those who might gain spiritual life. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, Jesus said. This is why unbelievers don't understand things like your gifts earlier on. Giving financial gifts to the church for the sake of spreading the gospel. It's why we're we're even tempted to think, you know, I could gain more in my investments in this world if I didn't give or if I gave a little less. But again, the question is, will it last? A person's soul will last. Building upon the foundation of Christ's teachings will last. Having the connections that we have with the missions that we are so blessed to partner in the gospel with, that work that saves souls and builds faith, that lasts. For when the floods of life come, our foundation is secure upon the rock, a rock that will endure for all eternity. History tells us that there has always been opposition to the gospel. And because God's word is effective, piercing, life-giving, and eternal, we should want all the more to know it and to give it, regardless of any opposition, because it's it's worth any suffering, any persecution, even death, for the sake of what lasts. We shouldn't be surprised by the opposition. It always has been a part of our history. And our day, we keep thinking, our day may be coming. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. But there's always been opposition. And it would be arrogant to think that it wouldn't come to us. But with that in mind, there's nothing to fear. Truly, there's nothing to fear because God is with us. He will strike down the Herods. He will lift up his church so that he and not any man receives the glory. Remember the message of Revelation. This is not this doesn't count as a teaching of Revelation, but the message is Jesus wins. Let's pray together. Almighty God, your word is truth. We believe. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. Help us to know you and to be confident in you. And love you and your promises that you give to us that are found in your word. Lord, give us a hunger for your word, to read it, to study it, to receive it and be changed. Lord God, make us fruitful for the blessing of others, for the glory of your name, for the increase of the good news of Jesus, for the growth of your church. Lord, help us to know and share this life-giving truth of your word as parents to our children, as husbands to our wives, 
as brothers and sisters in Christ, wanting to encourage one another to be steadfast in the faith. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your church, for the fellowship we enjoy as we gather to worship you. Thank you for the meal that we're about to enjoy, for dads that you've blessed us with, that we want to honor, for the friendships that are developed and strengthened as we as we gather and we share a meal like this. So, Lord, we give thanks and we ask your blessing. We love you. We praise you. 